Today, we begin a deeper dive into the Apocrypha. Apocrypha is a Greek word meaning hidden. You may also hear the term deuterocanonical, which is another way of referring to various combinations of the material. Um, This term, deuterocanonical, is primarily used for the Catholic choice of apocryphal books. Different streams of the Judeo and Christian religions include or exclude different books and passages. So there's no single body of work that defines the apocrypha. It's very fuzzy around the edges. And there's more about this back in class 70. For our study, we're sticking to the books that are included by both the Catholics and the Orthodox in their canon. Um, the Orthodox include a few more that we're not going to do, but we're hitting, we're kind of hitting the, the top of the iceberg here. We've already touched on several parts of the Apocrypha that were sprinkled into the books we've already studied, such as the Psalms. There was like an extra Psalm that was uh, maybe the first Psalm David ever wrote. There were additions to Daniel's story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There was the story of Susanna, uh, the story of Bell and the Dragon. And several little additions to the book of Esther that we finished not long ago. We're now going to pick up the rest of it. These will, for the most part, be whole books, not just inserts into other books. And again, we're, you know, like we've been doing, we're going to take them in chronological order according to their setting, not when they were written down. If you do not have a Bible with the Apocrypha in it, You can find it easily online for free in lots of places. ExploreTheFaith.com is a site that I find well-organized and easy to navigate. Uh, You'll um, find the Apocrypha listed under their Bible menu at the heading Deuterocanonicals, and they have a a couple of different choices under there. Or you can um, just search on the name of the book you're looking for within their website. But, but um, I, I enjoy their summaries and their outlines and, uh, and the big print. I've got big print, which is nice for us old folks. As we read these stories, many will sound fantastical to you. And you may wonder how in the world anyone could think they belong in the Bible. But catch yourself. You're looking through your own cultural lens. All the writers of the books of the Bible brought their own language and customs and lenses to their work. How could they help it? And we are accustomed to reading around those cultural overlays and inserts. We don't even notice that we're doing it. Uh, We have to do it in order to get to the underlying gift. So as you listen today, When you hear something completely outlandish, pause, catch yourself. Is there another story in either the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament that contains similar elements? Jot that down and bring those thoughts with you into the breakout discussion afterwards. So here we go. We will start with the book of Tobit. The story is set during the time the northern kingdom of Israel falls to the Assyrians around 722 BCE. Tobit is a good man, a righteous man, living in Tishbe near Kadesh Naphtali on the shore of Galilee. He is raised by a father who worships Baal, 
but his father dies when he's young and Tobit himself remains faithful to Yahweh and often travels alone to worship in Jerusalem. Tobit is married to a woman named Anna and they have a young adult son named Tobias. They are a happy family. That is, until they're taken captive by the Assyrians and hauled off to Nineveh, along with everyone else they know. But even in exile, Tobit remains faithful to Yahweh and finds favor in the employ of the Assyrian king. Now remember that at this time, Assyria, shown here in green, is the great empire of the world, but it is nearing its own fall. Babylon will soon arise and take over all the dark green part and more. The capital city of Assyria is Nineveh, and it's kind of right here in the middle. And Medea is an important region east of Nineveh. Tobit's job is to be purveyor for the king. He trades goods, so he's always traveling and doing business. And on one trip to Medea, early in his employment with the king, he leaves 10 talents of silver in trust with a man named Gabael. Remember this, it comes into the story later. Eventually, the Assyrian king dies and his son, Sennacherib, comes to the Assyrian throne. Wars with the rising Babylonian kingdom become more intense and the roads are no longer safe for Tobit to travel. Tobit looks out for the other exiles who are left in Nineveh, and whenever he finds one of their bodies thrown outside the city walls, he secretly buries them, even though apparently that is against the law. But one night, one of the Ninevites reports him to the king, and Tobit knows he himself is marked for death. Tobit is able to save himself and his family, but he loses everything, his home, his job, and all that he owns. He and his family flee Nineveh and hide. Then, less than two months later, Sennacherib is murdered by his own sons, and a new king comes to the Assyrian throne. And miracle of miracles? The new king hires Tobit's nephew and places him over all the royal finances. And of course, the nephew in turn hires Uncle Tobit, who is now able to come out of hiding and return to Nineveh. Not long afterwards, the time for the Feast of Pentecost comes around. This is one of the festivals established in the Law of Moses. It happens in the late spring. And it's a festival celebrating the first fruits of the wheat harvest. As Tobit and his family sit down to eat in celebration, Tobit sees all the good food and tells his son Tobias to go out and find an exile from Israel who is poor and bring them in to join in the feast. But Tobias quickly returns and says to his father, there's a body one of our brethren lying strangled in the marketplace. Tobit jumps up and goes to collect the body and give it a proper burial. His neighbors ridicule him saying, you just got back from hiding and now you're burying bodies again? Tobit washes himself and 
prepares to sit down to eat once again. And he remembers something the prophet Amos said about all the Israelite feasts being turned into mourning. And he realizes this prophecy is certainly coming true. That same night, Tobit sleeps out in his garden and to his great alarm, discovers the next day that he is completely blind. Frantically, he casts around for some explanation. He finally decides bird droppings have infected his eyes. But whatever the cause, the result is that Tobit is now blind and the physicians are unable to remove the scales from his eyes. And so Tobit prays for the Lord to let him die. The scene of the story now shifts from Nineveh to the town of Ecbatana in Medea. Yep, the same place Tobit left that silver for safekeeping. But this time, it is a young woman named Sarah who is in view. Sarah is young and must be very winsome because she's already been married seven times. But every time she marries, her husband dies before the marriage can be consummated. She's living in her father's house, and now she's being ridiculed by her maidservants. They say, you have strangled your husbands. But Sarah knows she has not done any such thing. She knows the evil spirit Asmodeus killed them. Asmodeus? Who the heck is that? Well, according to Hebrew legend, Asmodeus is the king of demons. Jewish belief in him rose during the time of this exile. So, and you can see it here in the book of Tobit, how the widespread cultural demonology is creeping into Jewish understanding. It's, it's part of this story um, that was, even though it's set back in 722 in Assyria, this story was written down during the exile. So they're beginning to incorporate the cultural beliefs of their captors into their own religious views. The backstory of Asmodeus even appears in the Talmud, which is an important collection of Jewish rabbinic stories and commentary written after the time of Christ, very shortly after. Variations of the story are also found in other apocryphal writings, and they are completely mythical. If you're interested, I found the Asmodeus article at jewishencyclopedia.com to be fascinating. Sarah knows that the demon king Asmodeus is known to be the enemy of brides and bridegrooms. He is the one who is killing off her husband's. Scorned by her maidservants and under the power of the demon king, Sarah considers suicide, but decides the grief would kill her aging father. So instead, she prays to God to let her die. And God hears the prayers of both Tobit and Sarah, who have begged him to let them die. God sends the angel Raphael to help them, but they don't know it yet. The scene of the story now shifts back to Nineveh. Tobit, fully expecting God to let him die, suddenly remembers the 10 talents of silver he left with Gabael in Medea. 
And he realizes he needs to let his son Tobias know about that. So he calls his son Tobias to him and gives him a long lecture on how to conduct himself faithfully after Tobit's death. He reminds Tobias to be sure to take a wife from among his own people. And he tells Tobias, do to no one what you yourself dislike. Well, that sounds pretty much like the golden rule, doesn't it? Jesus says the same thing centuries later. Tobit's exhortation to Tobias is well worth reading. He closes saying, don't worry that we are poor. You are rich if you love God and leave sin behind, doing what is pleasing in God's eyes. And he tells Tobias about the 10 talents of silver he's left with Gabael in Medea. Tobias understands that he is to go fetch the silver, but he asks his father, how will Gabael know to give me the money? So Tobit gives Tobias a letter in his own handwriting and tells him to go find someone who knows the area in Medea who can go with him. So Tobias goes out and finds a man named Azarias, who actually knows Gabael of Medea. If this seems like a bit of a coincidence, it is. Azarias is none other than the angel Raphael in disguise, sent by God to save both Tobit and Sarah from death. Tobias takes Azarias home. Tobit interviews him, hires him as a travel guide for Tobias, and the two young men begin making preparations for the journey. One night, they stop to make camp near the Tigris River. Tobias goes down to wash, but a huge fish jumps up out of the river and nearly swallows him alive. Azariah yells, grab him, grab him. And once Tobias wrestles the fish onto the shore, Azariah tells him to cut the fish open and take his heart, liver, and gall. The next day, as they journey, Tobias asks Azariah what use this stinky heart, liver, and gall of the fish have. And Azarias tells him, if a demon attacks someone, we can burn the heart and liver of the fish and the smoke will drive the demon away, whereas the gall of the fish will heal blindness. Hmm, can't imagine where this story is going, can you? All this fish stuff is part of the cultural, widespread cultural understanding of the demon Asmodeus. Finally, they arrive in Medea. Azarias tells Tobias that they will lodge with a man named Raguel, who happens to be related to Tobias. And Raguel has an only daughter named Sarah. Yes, that's Sarah. And Azarias will ask Raguel to allow Tobias to marry Sarah. Lots of fishy coincidences here. Furthermore, Azarias says, since you are her kinsman, her inheritance rightfully belongs to you. Now, it doesn't specifically say this in the text, but the implication is that he is her kinsman redeemer under the law, her nearest male relative who must marry her since she is widowed. 
But Tobias says, oh, no, 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 no. I know who this is. This is the gal whose seven husbands have each died on their wedding night. No way. A demon is jealous for her. And Azariah answers, don't worry about that demon. This very night, Sarah will be given to you in marriage. When you go into the bridal bedchamber, put some of the heart and liver of the fish on the incense burner, and the smoke will drive the demon away forever. Meanwhile, both you and Sarah rise up immediately and beg God for mercy, and you will be saved. Now, this sounds like a good plan to Tobias. And so they come to Raguel's house in Ecbatana. Raguel mentions that, hmm, young Tobias looks remarkably like his cousin Tobit. And so the truth comes out. Tobias reveals that he is indeed Tobit's own son and that Tobit has become blind. The men agree that it is right and fitting that Sarah should marry Tobias as her kinsman redeemer. But Raguel's conscience does not allow him to do this without warning Tobias about what happened to Sarah's previous seven bridegrooms. But Tobias had met Sarah when they first arrived and feels joined to her in spirit already. It was love at first sight. And knowing he's got the fish heart and liver in his pocket, he insists that the marriage take place. And so a quick contract is drawn up and signed and the marriage is arranged. Then they all sit down to eat. As the meal draws to a close, Sarah's mother takes Sarah to the bridal bedchamber to prepare, and then Tobias is brought to her. Tobias puts the heart and liver of the fish on the incense burner, and when the evil demon Asmodeus, who definitely shows up, when when that evil demon smells the smell of the fish, he flees to Egypt where the angel Raphael binds him, and then Presumably, Raphael returns to Ecbatana in the disguise of Azarias, with no one the wiser. When the demon arrives and then departs, Tobias gets Sarah up out of bed and they pray for God's mercy, as Azarias had told them to. And Tobias prays, Lord, I do not take this my sister in lust, but I take her in truth. Grant us mercy and let us grow old together. And Sarah says, Amen. How sweet is that, right? Well, unbeknownst to the happy couple, Sarah's father is outside digging a grave for Tobias. When he's finished, his wife sends a maidservant to see if Tobias has been killed during the night. But the maid returns with the astounding news that the couple are not dead, but both are sound asleep. Her father says, oh, praise God, and he has the servants fill the dirt back in the grave. The wedding festivities last two solid weeks. During the celebrations, Tobias calls Azarias to him and asks him to travel on to the home of Gabuel and retrieve the 10 talents of silver and bring both Gabuel and the silver back to participate in the festivities. Meanwhile, back at home in Nineveh, both Tobit and his wife Anna 
are convinced their son has perished on the journey. It's taken far, far longer than it should have. Little do Tobit and Anna know that even now, Tobias and his bride, Sarah, are receiving the blessings of her parents as they and Azarias set out to return to Nineveh. As they approach Nineveh, Azarias says to Tobias, let us take the gall of the fish and run ahead to meet your father. Anna sees them coming and cries out with relief and astonishment. Tobit, try, Tobit tries to find the door, stumbling around, unable to see. Tobias reaches his father, smears the fish gall onto his father's eyes, and it makes Tobit scrub at his eyes. The scales fall from his eyes, and Tobit's sight is restored. Tobias introduces Sarah to his parents. Thanks are given to God, and there are hugs all around. And so they celebrate the marriage of Tobias and Sarah for seven days in Nineveh. Afterwards, Tobit calls Tobias in and tells him it is time to pay Azariah his agreed wages. But Tobias says, it is not enough, father, for all he has done for us. Let him have half of all we brought back with us. But when they call Azarias in to offer him this, Azarias reveals that he is really Raphael, one of the seven holy angels. We call them archangels, and we've already met Gabriel and Michael in the Hebrew Bible. Raphael says, I was there when you prayed, Tobit, for God to take your life. And also when Sarah prayed for God to take her life. I was there. When you buried the dead, I was sent to heal you. Tobit and Tobias fall to the ground, terrified. But Raphael raises them up, saying, Do not be afraid. I have come from God. Notice that in all the time I have been with you, I have neither eaten nor drunk anything. I want you to remember that part. This is a po another popular cultural be belief that is coming into the just kind of the general milieu of what people believe who come who, who live in this time period. They believe that a spirit can neither eat nor drink. That belief is going to come into play later in the New Testament. Raphael says, write everything down in a book, for I am ascending to God. And with that, he leaves and they never see him again. And another note on that eating and drinking, I want to point out that this is a cultural shift, because if you remember when Abraham entertained the three visitors, the two angels and God, they ate and drank together. Abraham prepared, Sarah prepared a meal for them. So um, it's, it's, it's important to, to, to notice these cultural shifts. So anyway, Raphael's gone, never see him again. Chapter 13 is Tobit's prayer of praise and thanksgiving to God. It even includes some end time words about nations coming from afar to give gifts to God the king. He sees Jerusalem built with sapphires and emeralds and precious stones with walls and towers of gold. And that makes me wonder if this is how 
the Jewish culture of the time is to be beginning to build up their imagining around the end time prophecies of the restoration of Jerusalem. The last chapter is an epilogue. Tobit has grown old. Sarah and Tobias have given him six grandsons. Tobit has heard what the prophet Jonah has said to Nineveh, and he fears Nineveh will be destroyed, which I think that is so cool that this story envisions Tobit living when Jonah came to warn Nineveh. In the Jonah story, Nineveh repents and is and is saved. That's, um, I don't think quite how Tobit understands it. Anyway, Tobit sends Tobias and his family to Medea, far away from Nineveh, uh, hoping that they will be safer in Medea. Tobit prophesies that Nineveh will be conquered and the people of Israel scattered. Jerusalem will be desolate and the temple burned down. So this is all, you know, good, solid, in time, good solid prophecy, you know, that, that is consistent with the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. He also prophesies that in time, God will gather his people back and both Jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt more glorious than ever. And all the nations will bury their idols. I love that. Then Tobit at the ripe old age of 158 draws his last breath and dies. Tobias and Sarah stay with Anna until she also dies, and then they return to Ecbatana to the home of Sarah's father. Tobias himself dies at the age of 127, but before he dies, he hears of the destruction of Nineveh, and he rejoices. There you have it, our first full book of the Apocrypha. If you were raised as a Protestant Christian, you most likely have never heard this story before. In our breakout groups today, we'll talk about what we found a little fishy in this story, but also where we see God in it, and, and maybe even where we see similarities with other places in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. How fun was that? You have a twisted sense of fun there. (laughs) (laughs) Did you find this hard? Talk to me. Renee was in the middle of a thought that I would love to have her finish. Okay. Um, You had mentioned, I was talking about how you had mentioned that sometimes when they say an angel of the Lord, they're actually meaning Jesus. It's usually actually God. Creator God. Yes. Yeah. But, but. I was I was wondering if because I remember from learning from somewhere and I don't know where but I've gone to so many different churches in my lifetime um that that ordinary people can't bind a demon. Yeah, and all of this is folklore. So and so, so I was wondering if it was pointing towards the, because the person because the angel could bind the demon if that meant it was God. It, it, it doesn't necessarily, I mean, it's, it's um, in the Hebrew Bible, what I had been pointing out was actual terminology, actual text in the Bible, mm-hmm. where very often if the angel ends up being God in person and identified as such later in the story, very often the phrase, the angel of the Lord 
is the wording used to identify that angel in the first place. Okay. Okay. As opposed to regular angels who show up all the time and do things and send messages and do stuff. But all of this that we're doing <laughs> in the Apocrypha, and that is growing out of this kind of time frame of the exile, which is where Daniel was, um, where Ezekiel was, for example, that these, these um, visions and stories are pulling in threads from common folklore around where, where they're living. Um, right. So don't build theology out of this. What it's what I'm really wanting you to understand is I want you to actually see visually. I mean, you all know enough about the Hebrew Bible to know that this looks nothing whatsoever like most of those stories, right? Right, right. That's, I shared two things. That one is having taught folklore, it just kind of screams folklore <laughs> because all the stuff you know, ties up into this neat little bow with like a moral, you know, a theme (laughs) or a lesson. But it also reinforces that thing about, you know, um, be loyal to God, God's going to trust you. And in the end, you'll be rewarded. And now I don't think I, I mean, now that we've done this, that isn't the way I think this works. (laughs) so and donna has a great comment here over in the chat she said the ancient greeks used the word demon to refer to minor gods or intermediate supernatural beings as well as the souls of the dead a demon might also be a supernatural entity that caused disease or was the disease personified demons could possess humans causing madness um, but the philosophers generally saw demons as exclusively good. And that's the philosophers are different than the theologians. So we have to keep those separate. Um, we're, in, we're into the time of Plato and Aristotle. And so philosophy as a thing is beginning to grow with its own characteristics. And so we've got the whole logos, the word um, ideas being uh, shaped and talked about, and they're very different than the folkloric um, kind of demonology and, and stuff. It's, it, they're kind of two different things. Um, but anyway, the end of her quote says, even regular people viewed them not as evil incarnate, but as capricious creatures who needed sacrifices to mollify them. Where have we heard of sacrifices to mollify the gods, <laughs> right? Hell, so we had um, a lot of us in our group didn't really find it disturbing or you know Uh it it didn't really bother us that much but I did have a question and I'd like some clarification from you if you could we talked about the fish and the sacrifice of the fish is fish not considered meat like when the Jewish people made their offerings was that a different kind of meat Fish was not part of it. That's what we kind of thought. Yeah, Yeah. fish was not part of it. Um, Did you all think about uh, similar stories uh, that stories that had similar characteristics that we are more accustomed to and don't sound quite as strange to us? Marlene? Yeah, I I was mentioning in the in the group that um, several stories came to mind. There was the story of um, Job. Yep. The, the story of um, Jonah, 
Mm -hmm. um, and even the story of um, Abraham sending off his, you know, his son to get a wife from a, a relative and, you know, the, the whole early part of the patriarchs um, that you had to marry a kinsman, a kinsperson. Oh, like, and Ruth marrying the kinsman redeemer, right? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Did, did y'all think of any New Testament um, themes that are things that are similar in this story to the New Testament? For those of you who are familiar with that. Um, no, but a movie. <laughs> yeah, we should get Michael. archaeology from movies. There you go. Michael, <laughs> Michael, John Travolta, he comes and he brings Andy McDowell and the guy together and they dance in Green Hall. Yeah. I was a huge fan of the show Supernatural. And this story fits in with that show yeah. so well that I just mm -hmm. feel really comfortable with the story. Well, but I have a question. There's, let me tell this one story, though. There is an obscure story. It's only a few verses long in the New Testament. It's in Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. At that time, um, and really through this time as well, uh, there was something called a temple tax that every year um, each male had to pay two drachma into the temple. It was a thing that you had to do to support the temple. And um, Jesus had, of course, already been at it with the powers that be over who pays taxes and who doesn't. And in this little story, it's time to pay the temple tax. And the people collecting that tax come to Peter, one of the Jesus's followers, and says, um, does your master pay temple tax? Which is like a trick question, right? You know, and um, because Jesus has been all about God is the king. And uh, well, Peter totally folds and says, yes, he does. And so, so then he goes right back to Jesus and, and they got no money. They don't have four drachma. They, they don't have money for the temple tax. And everybody's sitting there in the room, apparently, because it says Jesus spoke first. And yeah. uh, Jesus told Peter, he said, you know, when, when, when a king comes to collect taxes, who is... Who does he collect the, his taxes from? Does he collect his taxes from his children? Or does he collect taxes from other people? And Peter says, well, he collects his taxes from other people. And Jesus said, exactly. His, his children are exempt. Ooh, burn, you know? And, um, <laughs> and, so, and Jesus said, nevertheless, go out, catch a fish. And in that fish's mouth, there will be four drachma take the four, it will be a four drachma coin, take that coin and go pay your temple tax and mine too. Those weird fish. There is <laughs> another fishy story. And we don't bat an eye at that story because we are used to it in our New Testament. Don't even bat an eye. And then the, on the, on the, other, but when we hear a story like this with, you know, the fish guts and the stuff that you do with the fish guts, it, it feels bizarre or it can't feel bizarre. I, I was sort of thinking about the whole thing about burning the fish guts um, as something similar to what 
many people do today when they burn sage mm-hmm. to purify a space mm-hmm. and and how awful that must have smelled you know, <laughs> know right Your husband fish guts burns fish guts in the bridal in your chamber. bedroom you know how about, how about marrying a guy that smells like three-day-old dead fish yeah he's <laughs> yeah. yeah. carrying around in his pocket like a toddler <laughs> and can you imagine by the time he got back home and put that bile on his dad's eyes that was now three weeks old yeah. in the heat no refrigeration oh my gosh that must have yeah no wonder he rubbed his eyes <laughs> yeah, but right? he was glad to have that bile there on his eyes yes he was well I, you know when i was reading the version i have it said it burned his eyes when they put it and i can imagine bile would yeah burn your eyes And yet we see the same thing happening in the New Testament, don't we? We see the same belief that you have, that you put something on somebody's eyes. Remember Jesus would spit, you know, and put, make mud, tell somebody to go make mud patches and put it on your eyes. And, and there's all the idea that demons are causing these illnesses this is where this is coming this is these are the roots we're starting to see now they've always thought that god made or the gods made good things and bad things happened we've seen that like from the get-go right Mm -hmm. but it's taking a more anthropomorphic turn here Mm -hmm. and they're starting to separate out god from and they're taking the all the bad things that are happening and they're beginning to assign them to other lesser spirits well that's something that i struggled with is after we learned about satan you know that he's barely there all of a sudden now we have a demon in the story and i'm like so but maybe that's cultural i mean it is it's definitely you know, that's, cultural because i was gonna share when you're talking about the word demon i used to teach a book um by lawrence yep called dragon wings and it was about the chinese immigration and through angel island in the 1900s and i had a parent complain because they called the americans demons and i said but if you read the book and you do some research it's not a bad term Right. They think that we have some kind of magical power because we're finding gold on the golden magic mountain. Right. And they think that we have special gifts. Right. Which is what Donna had been saying. Right. Julia, and I was going to say a, that then. Yeah. Right. Oh, yes. Um, Marlene brought up something pretty interesting when I commented that things that I didn't, you know, disturbing or fishy, just odd. Um, that Sarah had seven hundreds, seven husbands die before consummation, and Marlene brought up that number seven. Yeah, here we see it again. You yeah. know, yeah, and this completeness. Yeah, and, yeah, and 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 one of the things that I was that that kind of came to my mind was, um, you know, seven is a significant number and must have had meaning in the story. Um, and so, you know, the guy number seven was just as unlucky as one through six, but perhaps (laughs) the point was that when number seven died, that whole series of loss was complete. Exactly. And so husband number eight. It's like a signal that now the story is going to shift. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. right? The story is yeah. very um, well-crafted. It's a well, love and, and the, the angel Raphael is one of seven archangels. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of sevens in this story. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I had commented that I thought was different from most of what we read in the canon was um, the way the beginning of the story was structured, where you have first the story of Tobit and Tobias and what's going on in their lives. And then it's like, meanwhile, in another town, we have this other story. And, and you know, immediately you know that at some point these stories are going to converge. And, and, um, and I don't remember seeing that form of narrative right. in the, the books in the canon that, that, you know, it's like, you know, this is happening over here. And then at the same time over here, we got this other yeah, story. It's very sophisticated storytelling, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's shift gears. What are the takeaways? If, is there a gift under here? Is there, why would this be important to so many millions to stay in canon? The same theme that we've seen throughout, the faithful are rewarded. There's a reason to remain faithful that, you know, if you are true to what God has called you to do, then good things happen because of it or whatever. I don't know, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. know that it's necessarily the good people get rewarded because that's not really it, but faith gets rewarded i forget who said it in our group but someone was referencing Tobit's actions of, his, of taking care of the dead israel israelites and yes even at his own risk and yeah. the, and the poor giving to the poor and even mm -hmm. wanting to invite a, a poor person in to share the feast right which which jesus had a parable about yeah, lots of parables about actually. Yes, absolutely. Speaking of parables, that's what my question is about. <laughs> um, I was taught, and this totally applies to the New Testament and may not apply to anything else at all, but that when there were stories that Jesus was telling specifically, but when there were stories in the New Testament, that those that were actual occurring stories that actually happened um used the names of people and that the ones that were generic and didn't specifically name people were parables being told to teach a lesson that were not necessarily true stories hmm, that's interesting i've never heard that really it's entirely possible you well know. then my question has no merit yeah. because my question was you know this story has people's names in it right specific names and stuff and is that significant but apparently not i i don't i don't necessarily think it's significant but but who am i to say and who would know right there's a couple of things in the chat martha and margie and i forgot to in introduce margie hi margie margie is martha's good friend my good friend um visiting visiting martha but um uh one of the things that um Martha said was it was interesting that she needed to marry on her side of the family. Um, maybe was that because all of the, the, her other husbands were on her husband's side and she ran out of them. I, I don't have any clue. I think that was a, just a, a, 
a way to manipulate the story. I think the author didn't really care about the facts, ma'am. He just, he was really just <laughs> telling you a good story. Um, and, and then Martha, when we asked about what, what might be a takeaway here is God's provision, is that God provides. And lastly, Margie says that in community organizing terms, we pay attention to those things that feed our own self-interest. And that is actually true. And we'll, we'll, Marlene has to leave early, so we'll speak about her. But what other takeaways did you all see in this story? realized that there's a story in the in the new testament where the pharisees i think it was the pharisees were trying to trick jesus and they tell a very similar story to this where the woman got married and then he died and seven brother and yeah these were the sadducees trying to trick and, him. Uh, okay and uh whose wife was she in heaven then but um i think that's very interesting that they use this similar story yeah, it makes you wonder, are they talking about this woman? You know, were they talking about Sarah and their story? Interesting. That's an actual possibility. I never even thought of that. Um, Julia. Erica made an awesome point about God hearing their prayers. Could you share that, Erica? Um, I said my takeaway, what I really appreciated it in the story and kind of looking it through with the mental health lens, since we're both crisis clinicians, is I have been taught that when, when people even consider attempting suicide, you know, that's like the big no, no sin, like God's going to be so angry and mad at you. And so I really appreciated how here's two people who were so defeated that they even contemplated wanting to end their life. And then God met them and cared for them and his love and compassion found a way to save them both. So it was encouraging to know that what we've been taught to be, you know, a sin, um, that God's, God's there, even in our, our darkest hour. So I really appreciated this story for that. That gave me goosebumps. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was beautiful. Well, we, um, do you have any other comments? We're to the end of, um, what's supposed to be our time. And it was a wild mm-hmm. and crazy story, a good introduction to the Apocrypha. Any other observations before we go? Happy Mother's Day to all of you. I want to share this with you very quickly. I was going to put it in the Facebook group. Um, I tend to be a book hoarder. And uh, I had a, a stash of books under um, a place upstairs that I was like going to go through. And several of them were religious books. And I would pick them up and go, I don't believe that anymore. And I don't believe that anymore. <laughs> that's amazing I think that's just wonderful and it also it really helps focus on you know what is the important parts and reading stories like this we can cut kind of cut through the middle of the story and find stuff fairly easily now yeah thanks for that I love you all we'll see you next week we'll do another one bye bye Bye, y'all